0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org.
1: So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 7 through 13, um, talking to the church in Philadelphia. So if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that Bible with you today as a gift from us. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Y'all can be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, I want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Um, We are in a series entitled Seven, like Jenna just just informed you guys about. We've been walking through the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation uh, given by Jesus through the pen of John. And we've been trying to our heart behind the series really is trying to incline our ear to hear not just what Jesus was saying to these particular churches in the particular time and place, but also what, is, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for, for us today? Because I, I do believe that this is a timeless words from Jesus, what he's saying to these churches, and that we can glean from that. Um, and, and listen, one of the reasons why this series has mattered uh, a lot to us from an elder perspective is, is there an opinion in the, in the entire universe that matters more for the church if you're, let's say, evaluating a church's health or success or fruitfulness, then the opinion of Jesus. And the and the answer, of course, is no. What The opinion that matters of the utmost is what does Jesus think about the church, right? That's both capital C and, and then the local expressions of the church. What does Jesus think? What is he saying to the churches? And we want to incline our ear. And, and the reason for this is because we know that Satan hates the church. He's constantly opposing the church. In fact, throughout each of these letters that Jesus writes, Jesus is pretty charismatic here, doesn't have any problem talking about spiritual warfare and, you know, Satan actually opposing the church. He's just out, out front and open about that. And so if that's the case, the question would be, how does the church fight back? And I, and I think that we have to, have to remember, we don't fight back through carnal means. The church fights back by listening to the words of Jesus in the scriptures trusting him, believing him, but through the power of the spirit being led back to Jesus. That's how we, that's how we fight back. And so what I want to do before we jump in is I want to kind of recap because we're in week six now or week seven of the series, but church number six. So uh, next week we'll be closing the series out. I want to say, I want to, what has Jesus said to the five churches we've gone through? Uh, and then what's, why is Philadelphia a little bit unique this morning? And then, and then we'll pray and jump in. So Ephesus, Jesus says, you've lost your first love. Or the warning is, don't lose your first love for Jesus. That's the, that's the, the call. That, that we could do a lot of things right and even be biblically sound, but we don't want to lose the, the zealous love that we have at first when we first come to know Christ. That we should look to cherish that and nourish that among us. And then he says to Smyrna, don't grow weary by your suffering or your poverty or your circumstances, but endure faithfully. And so that Christians will go through a lot, but that even in all of the suffering, even in all the hardship, that we should endure faithfully. To Pergamum, he tells them, don't abandon the truth of the gospel, that there's a lot of false teaching that will try to creep in, that you have to stick true and faithful to the purity of the gospel. To Thyatira, he says, don't mistake worldly tolerance for true gospel love. So he says that there's going to be a temptation for you to think, well, we want to be loving because we're Christian, but that in so doing, You'll actually diminish the truth about, well, let's say the cross itself. Because if there's not a, such a thing as sin, then there's no reason for the cross, right? We know that there is such a thing as sin. We know there's such a thing as fallenness. And that's why the cross had to happen. And so it says, don't, be, don't feel that we could be more tolerant than God. That's the idea here from Jesus. And then to Sardis, he says, don't become enamored or obsessive about your worldly reputation, but lean into me to know that what my, my opinion of you matters the most And then this morning, we're in Philadelphia, which Philadelphia is one of the only two churches that gets only encouragement, no rebuke. So Philadelphia is all encouragement. It's all life-giving words to this church um, from the Lord Jesus. And Jesus does a few things, but one of the main things I think he does is he he lifts up their eyes uh, to have a vision, a vision of who he is, a vision of how the world is, a vision of uh, who we are in Christ and Who we're called, or what we're called to do, or who we're called to be in Christ, and in so doing, it's this uplifting message that is rooted in truth and reality. And I want to walk through that together. And the reason for that is, I believe Christians generally are extremely under encouraged, Um, and I think that we we underestimate just how valuable encouragement is. I think Christian leaders are under encouraged, and, and and human beings maybe generally are under encouraged that that there's something that solid encouragement does to the human soul that causes it to flourish. And when I say solid encouragement, I mean there are some ingredients to, for encouragement to actually be effective. Uh, I think there's two ingredients, and for the Christian three, the two ingredients are these. Solid encouragement that lasts and sustains us, that causes us to flourish, has to be true, and it has to be Timely. So the first is solid encouragement has to be true, meaning it doesn't mean anything if someone comes up to you and says, man, you have beautiful blue eyes, but you have brown eyes, right? We all know this. In fact, that's offensive. Like the ladies are like, yeah, if your boyfriend said that to you, your husband said that to you, it's like, that's not good. It's a bad thing, right? You lose there. That's a joke, obviously, but, but seriously, are there, there are times where someone might encourage us about something that we know just deep down isn't true about us, right? It's like, oh my gosh, you're so, you know, you're so wonderfully read and well-spoken, it's like, well, if you know that you're not those things, it's like, well, you clearly don't know me. Um, but if they say something that's true, and it's like true at the core of who you are, and you know that that's true, but you, somebody's recognizing, it, it's like, ooh, that lands. Now, sometimes it won't land, and that's why the number two is important. At times in our lives, we're just blinded. We can't hear the encouragement. My wife gets on to me about this. She's like, listen, I try to encourage you, and you just, you're, a, you're an encouragement deflector, you know? And if you're married, you get this. You know, you're, maybe you're, you're, you're a spouse who tries to encourage your spouse, and they just, you know, yeah, 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 whatever, you're supposed to say that. But there's these times, and if you've ever experienced this, you'll know what I'm talking about, when it's really timely, like you just needed to hear it. It came from a source, whether it be someone really close to you or not, and they said something true about you in the timely fashion, and it landed, and it causes you to be sustained. Now, those are the two things that I think are true about encouragement no matter what. But the third ingredient here, I think for every Christian, what we know deep down is that the best encouragement comes from Jesus, even when it comes through one another. So why do I say that? If it's from Jesus through each other, then we know it's always true and it's always timely, which is why it fits, why it makes sense, why it causes us to flourish. This is why Jesus introduces himself to Philadelphia as the true one, the holy one, the one who holds the key of David. He's, he's true. He's right on time. He has the power. And so when Jesus encourages us through his word, it sustains us. Jesus uses the word behold three times here, which I think is not by mistake. The idea of beholding is to open your eyes, lift your head, open your eyes, see things as they truly are. Encouragement has a way of doing that. It has a way of lifting your head off from the ground where you're discouraged. You know, you kind of hang your head when you're discouraged. Beholding is, encouragement lifts your head. It lets you see things as they are. And the reason that we all need encouragement in a world that's broken and fallen is that the world can beat you up. Man, the world can make you hang your head. And all of us have experienced that at some level. And if you haven't experienced that, just give it time. The world has a way of, of beating you up. And so Philadelphia is no different than this. This church is located in an area that was just known for earthquakes. They they had earthquakes often. And so right after uh, a major earthquake, Jesus writes this, uh, this letter through the pen of John. So it's like they're building their church. And Providence, we can resonate with this, right? Getting flooded all the time, it seems like. It's like the moment that you feel like you just get things back up and going, there's an earthquake that destroys the church. And now they're trying to fix it. They're trying to, how do we get, how can we meet? It's just things are discouraging. You know, in earthquakes, you got to think in the, um, in the ancient times, this would be probably lots of death, lots of injuries, uh, like, man, it's, it's not going to be something small. And Jesus is in the, in these times of constant hardship and constant rebuilding, He's telling them, I don't want you to hang your head, but he's exhorting them. He's bringing, behold and see the world as I see it. See yourself as I see you. See me as I truly am. He's he's lifting up their head. And I think it's a helpful word for us this morning that we need to be encouraged by Jesus to lift our heads, refocus, and see what Jesus sees. You know, Philadelphia was uh, constantly being shaken by literal uh, natural disasters, And yet Jesus, at the end of this encouragement, is going to tell them, I'm going to make you into a pillar of my God. Meaning you're going to be an established fixture in the temple eternally. And the interesting thing about Philadelphia is that this church lasted for 1,300 years, longer than any of the other seven churches. This church stuck around. They were faithful. And I think this needs to be our prayer. May we be faithful like Philadelphia is, that he, would, he might make us a fixture for generations. I want to pray that God would help us to incline our ears so that as we hear his word, that he'd open our eyes, lift our heads, and encourage us to sustain us. So if you will, bow your heads. I want to pray that, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, I'm just so grateful that your word is true and that you have a way of encouraging that we can't get anywhere else, and so we ask now, humbly, as we come before your word, and as we bow our hearts before you in prayer, would you now speak life into each one of us? Do so collectively, Lord, as your bride, as your church, but do so individually. You know each of us. You know what we need to hear. Lord, may your encouragement be true. May it be timely. And may the fact that it comes from the very voice of the true and holy one with the key of David, may it resonate with us in a way that sustains us. Lord, we we love you and we trust you. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's start in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Just as a side note here, this introduction about the key of David is symbolism. Uh, it's, a, it's a prophecy from Isaiah 22 that God said he would, He would replace a leader of Jerusalem who was failing with a leader who he would give the key of David to. This idea of the key of David, tons of commentators say a ton of things. But generally speaking, most people agree this is the idea that King David was given a promise by God that he would sit upon a throne that went on forever and ever. And by that, it meant that King David's children, whoever in his lineage would be the chosen one, the Messiah would also sit on this throne and that chosen Messiah would ultimately reign and rule with all authority and all power. And so Jesus says, I'm the one that Isaiah is talking about. I'm the one who has the key to open up doors that no one can open, to close doors that no one can shut. Now we must think as Christians, there's a very obvious, direct straight line that we can draw from opening up doors that no man can open, closing doors no man can shut, to Jesus' work on the cross that he did for us, opening up the door to salvation eternally that no man can shut. It's opened wide now. We live in the church age where now we stand every week preaching that the doors opened wide and Christ is welcoming people into his kingdom because he's done what only he could do. He's the only one with this key, Right? And so Jesus starts off by introducing himself this way, that he's got power. His power is unique. His power is singular. His power is his alone. And then in verse 8, he's going to do what he's done with four other churches by saying, I know your works. I know what's going on here. I, I know you. I know what's happening in the church. I know how you're living. I know what you're saying. I know what you're doing. And I think from this moment on, there should be an encouraging thought here is that we know that Philadelphia is not a perfect church because we know that they're people, right? So there's, not like it, there's nothing wrong going on here. Can we agree? So the fact that Jesus doesn't say anything as a rebuke here is not because they're perfect, but because, and this is something we should think about, especially for those of us who are highly critical. Sometimes it's not worth saying. You don't have to point out everything that's wrong <laughs> in life. That's a, just a good principle to live by, by the way. They might fix your marriage. You don't always have to point out the things that are bad. Jesus could have said probably a million things that are wrong with Philadelphia. Instead, he chooses to take a tack of encouragement and only speak life, that sometimes that's necessary. Now, I don't think that what that means is that we never speak the truth, that we never point out that which is flawed because that's also loving. But here, Jesus gives us wisdom by showing us that we can speak encouragement only even when things aren't perfect because we live in a fallen world. Okay, let's go. Behold, I've said before you an open door which no one's able to shut. And I know that you have but little power. That's key. And yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So, this idea of Jesus promising to them that he would open up a door that no man would close. You got to kind of look into the scriptures to figure out exactly what, what this might mean. We've already mentioned that probably the open, the open door of the gospel, which is offered to all. But Paul in Colossians chapter four also tells the, the church at Colossae that they, he asks them, will you pray with me that God might open a door that I might preach the gospel boldly as I ought to and make it clear? So Jesus is saying to this church in Philadelphia, "You have little power," and I know that. That's 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 simultaneously it might sound like that's a little bit of a shot. It's not. It's not. It's actually just pointing out reality. This is true of the Christian church everywhere. You have but little power. If you ever had a feeling like, hey, what I say is not going to matter, I'm not the guy that gets to write policy, I'm not the one who goes into big boardrooms calling the shots, I don't go in and lead big meetings, I don't stand in front of big crowds of people, I don't have that much influence, and the church often feels this way, and Jesus says, hey, that's true. (laughs) He doesn't say, no, you're a snowflake, you're a bit of all right, you're awesome, you're like the lion, No, he says, yes, you have but little power. But then what does he say? But I have all the power, and I'm going to open a door that no man can close. Now, Paul asks basically something that I think every Christian should always know, and sometimes we forget. Paul knows there is no fruitfulness, there is no success, there is no hope that we have as Christians to be whatever you want to look at as successful, whether that's fruitful or productive or efficient, whatever that is for you. There's no way for us to be that apart from the power of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Some of you have experienced this probably in routine ways, whether it's in relationships that you have or even in evangelism. Have you ever, by your own power, argued someone into the faith? Ever noticed that like social media arguments typically don't end with altar calls? It's like, you know what? You're right. (laughs) I've never seen that in a social media post. You know what? You're right. Can I pray the sinner's prayer with you? It doesn't happen that way. How are we saved? By the power of God, through the grace of God and the gospel going forward, but God's the one who does the work. And we know this, and Paul knows this, but sometimes we forget it. And so Paul's saying, the guy who's wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he's well-versed on theology, he says, please, please pray that God will open a door that I might preach the gospel and that people might hear. Now, we live in a day that sees power as only an evil thing. And then listen, before I rail on that, there's a good reason for that mistake that we need to point out. That's a mistake, okay, to think that power is evil innately. But it's a mistake that makes sense. And here's why. Because power in the hands of sinful men is often used to hinder, hurt, and harm people in the worst kinds of ways. If you've ever read a history book, you've seen this. And so it's easy to say maybe power's the problem, so we need to flatten that. And here's what I'll say. The Bible gives us a much more fully formed understanding of power. The Bible teaches us that power belongs to the Lord alone. And that we ought not assume that power is the enemy, but instead we ought to seek to honor the God who holds all power. And when we find ourselves being given power by him as stewards, we ought to seek to wield that power humbly in submission to the holy king of kings, And do so for the good of others. So the question becomes, for the Christian, not, is there power involved? Because power will always be involved. It's who has the power and how will they wield it? Who has the power and how will they wield it? Have you ever thought, why is it, you know, Lord Acton's quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I actually think he says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Why is that? Well, the reason is because the idea of absolute power is built upon a faulty premise By its very nature. It says that absolute power is something that men could grasp. And the Bible says that's just not true. It's a lie of Satan for any person to believe that they could ever have absolute power in any circumstance, even if it's how they feel in the moment. I want to give you an example from the scriptures. And it's from the very life of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he's on trial. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, come against him at night to arrest him. And he looks at them and says... Did you not see me day by day teaching in the temple and yet now you come out at night against me like I'm a robber and you arrest me? And then here's his quote, but this is your hour under the power of darkness. And then he submits himself over to them to be arrested. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, you guys saw me teaching, doing all this stuff and now you have to come against me at night because you think I'm gonna fight you? He says, I know how this works. God's given you this one hour of power over me in the hour of darkness, and I'm gonna give myself over. But Jesus acknowledges that the power's not theirs. They're living on borrowed power that was given to them from God. Fast forward, there's this moment where Pilate, the governor, the procurator of Rome, he's standing in front of Jesus and they're engaging with one another. And Pilate is flummoxed by Jesus. He's angry at Jesus because Jesus won't plead for his life. He's saying, why won't you talk to me? Don't you know that I have the power of life and death over you? And Jesus has this wonderful response. He says, you have no power except that which was given to you from above. Meaning, you don't have power that isn't borrowed. The power you have was given to you by the Father, and I submit to the Father. And that's why I don't plead for myself here. Now, Christians should know better than anyone, and I think this is what Paul was getting at, that although we don't have much power and we are weak, we have Christ as Lord, and therefore he has all of the power And listen to me, and we should be eager that he would wield that power for his glory and for our good. We should. We shouldn't shy away from the idea of power because there is going to be power because what? Nature abhors a vacuum. Someone's going to be in authority. What we should be asking for is that it be God because God is both all powerful and all good. That's good news. See, the problem with power is when fallen people have lots of power and they're not good, it leads to terrible things. But Jesus having all power is the greatest news that could ever be given. He says, I hold the key of David. I'll open a door that no man can open and I'll shut a door that no man can shut. In other words, Jesus has the power. And, and, second part of these verses is, and he loves us. Now, you may know Philadelphia is... The city of brotherly love, if you ever heard of that, that's the meaning of the word Philadelphia. And the reason for that is, you know, Philadelphia is obviously not an American city first, hence we're reading about it here from thousands of years ago. Um, Philadelphia was a city founded by a king who had a little brother, and the king did not have a successor. And so he was going to give his kingdom into the hands of his little brother whom he loved. And that's the founding of the city uh, of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And so in the city of Philadelphia, the, these two brothers that founded this city, if you think of this through the lens of Scripture, it's interesting that Jesus would speak to them in this way about love in this city if we look at it through the lens of the Bible. The Bible starts with one of the very first stories in chapter 4 is a story about two brothers. And these two brothers end up, their relationships end ends up being severed by resentment and being defined by resentment and not love, Cain killing his brother Abel. You fast forward here to... Jesus speaking to the church of Philadelphia, and he kind of takes the place of the older brother. He takes the place of what Cain should have been. And he says, hey, I know that your brothers across the way who bear the name of brother, they call themselves Jews, but they're not. He says, they're slandering you and they're speaking hateful things about you. Jesus comes as the big brother and says, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to make sure that they know that I have loved you. I'm going to bring them in, and I'm going to publicly pronounce my love for you before the brothers who are acting like Cain, and I'm going to come and tell them you're mine. So I want to follow the line of Jesus' encouragement here, just so we're on the same page. He says, I know you have little power, but I have all the power. And I'm going to open a door for you to honor me and to worship me and obey me, and I'm going to do it because I love you. And listen, Jesus says, I don't love you covertly. I love you openly. I love you publicly. And I know that there are some who are bearing the name of brother. They are abusing you. And I'm going to use my power so that they might know before the presence of everyone that I have loved you. That's the words of Jesus here in a nutshell. Now I wanna ask this question in light of that. Is there anything more impactful in our human experience than the true experience of this kind of love. Like love is at the core of our heart's desire. When Jesus says these things, it should speak to you at the very core of who you are. And in particular, Jesus does something here that I think is important to note. True love is not merely private. It's also public. Now I know there's some of you who immediately, when I say that, you recoil. You're more of an introvert. You're like, no, not me. You know, like the whole PDA thing is just gross to you. You know, like, I don't, you know, so your spouse tries to hug you or kiss you in public. You're like, what are you doing? Why would you do it? (laughs) You know, you don't like that. It's weird. It's odd. And it's like, this is our thing. And, and, And I understand that. But here's what I'll say. The importance of love being announced publicly is woven into the very fabric of marriage itself. Think about the marriage ceremony. Whether there be three people there or 300 people there, nonetheless, it's this public moment where you look at the into the eyes of the one that you love, and you say, I have chosen you above and against anyone else, and I publicly declare that I love you in the presence of all of these people. I choose you. My affection is for you and you alone. We declare that love irrespective of the opinion of anyone that's there, right? It's just, this is my love for you. We even say vows, and these vows have to be vocalized, right? Even if you're the one, I do a lot of weddings, that just says, you say the vows, I'll say I do. You still say I do. You still vocalize this. And this kind of love, it's not, just, it's not just something we do culturally. It's not just some frivolous thing. It's very important because this kind of public display of love is both affirming and establishing for the relationship forevermore. It's why whenever maybe couples either at a, at a very celebratory like year mark in their marriage or if they've gone through tough times, they'll do something called like a covenant renewal, like a vow renewal. It's because it has a way of reminding and affirming and reestablishing this is us. This is who we are together. I've chosen you once again, all over again, years later, even with all the weight I've gained. It's a joke, but seriously. (laughs) And Jesus says that's what he's doing here to Philadelphia. Just, I want, in the face of all the enemies, in the face of all the accusations, in the face of all the hardship, I want to publicly show them I have loved you. That's at the very center of that longing we have to be loved as human beings. We get this encouragement from Jesus, not only that he loves us, but that he intends to express that love for us publicly, even in the face of anyone who would be an enemy. Jesus loves you. And the reason that this is so important is, have you ever felt like in your human experience or maybe your walk with Christ, that there's something that's caused you to question whether you're on the right track? Like, is Jesus even with me? If you've walked with Jesus for long enough, you've probably had those dark nights of the soul. Am I in him? Do I know him? Do I trust him? Does he love me? Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. How do I keep experiencing this opposition? Am I doing the right thing? Do I need to continue on in this path? Because it doesn't seem like this should be so. And even though we know that the Bible tells us and promises us hardships, there's no way you can walk through hardships without feeling like, can I do something different in order to avoid these? And you know why that is? Because sometimes we make unwise decisions and sinful decisions. We experience the consequences, and we know that that's a possibility. But let me tell you something. Sometimes you experience hardship like Job, and it's actually because you're on the right path, not the wrong one. Philadelphia is that kind of church. And what they needed to hear from Jesus is, I will publicly pronounce my love for you so that you might be affirmed and reestablished that I'm with you. Jesus loves us, friends. Isn't that a, isn't that amazing news? If we could just settle there, we could probably close out right now. You are loved by Jesus, so much so that he wants to express that publicly, profess it publicly. Don't you love how this is a little bit reversed from all of the other things that we've read from the other churches? Jesus challenges the other churches, you need to stand for my name publicly. You need to stand for my name and stand for me publicly. Here he says, I'm going to stand for you publicly. People are saying that you're not loved. People are saying that you're not mine. People are saying you have no power. I'm going to stand and say, I love them. They are mine. Just as a side note, this is why one of the most impactful and encouraging and caring things that pastors and leaders and friends can do for you is point you to Jesus who loves you, that he might remind you of that love. That's what care looks like. You want to talk about being cared for? Being cared for is people that bring you back to the love of Jesus and say, he loves you. When your friends don't love you right, Jesus loves you right. When your family doesn't love you right, Jesus loves you perfectly. When you feel slighted and overwhelmed, Jesus loves you in the midst of it. When you feel like people are mistreating you, Jesus loves you perfectly. And the best friends you're ever going to have are going to bring you back to that regularly. You see, we can be conduits for Jesus' love, and I think that's a good thing. But if we ever mistake that somehow we are the ones who can fill this chasm in the heart by loving people perfectly, you'll fail. (laughs) Only Jesus can love like that. And he uses that power in his love to bless us and to open the door and welcome us in through the gospel. Okay, so what's the second part now? Let's start in verse number 10. Here's what it says. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth i am coming soon hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown so the rest of john's writing throughout the rest of this book if you've read revelation there's a reason it's simultaneously the most popular book and the most unpopular book it's popular because we all love the idea of being able to know our future until we read about what john says about our future and then we're like what the heck not as crazy about it, right? It's like you read about John's writings and they're intense. There are dragons, there are angels throwing down pouring out vials of wrath. There's all sorts of things in this book that you probably wouldn't want to read, like as a bedtime story to your seven-year-old. And yet, Jesus says here, I'm gonna tell you about the future, the hour of trial that's coming upon you. And you might be asking, well, how is that encouraging? And this is a tedious line to walk as a pastor because this text is unbelievably encouraging. It's just not the kind of fluffy, glittery encouragement that is detached from reality that our cultures become obsessive about. We've become accustomed to encouragement or excitement that is surface level and untrue. Not so detached from reality that it's like we're flying in space. Someone says something to you that feels good, but it's just not true. And we're like, oh, I'll accept it anyway. At least it feels good. Jesus tells us what's true, and it's encouraging because once we get down to the subterranean levels of that truth, it's like, ooh, that's exactly where I want to live. What do I mean by that? Jesus says, hard times are coming. And then he says, I'll guard you from you, from them. I will guard you. I'll protect you. Hold fast to me. So the modern zeitgeist, the modern thought is that we live in a world that we can tweak into perfection by our own human wisdom and our own human abilities. And I know why this is attractive, and I think you do too, because number one, how many of us wake up wanting to live in a fallen world that's broken and say, like, you don't wake up saying, you know what I want? Back problems today. That's what I'm after. You know, you wake up and you're like, oh, why can't I breathe through both nostrils? I was after it only one today. No one does this, right? No one wakes up and is like, you know what I want? I want to hit every red light on the way to work. Potentially maybe a fender bender in the way, insurance problems, that would work. Nobody does that. So we know that none of us like the idea of suffering, hardship. And then number two, we also don't like the idea that that suffering, that hardship, that difficulty is outside of our hands. We want to believe that we could have something to do with minimizing this, right? How much of our efforts are sought after in a good-hearted manner, trying to curb human suffering, trying to diminish it, trying to lessen it? And I want to say this. I don't think that that's bad labor. In fact, I think this is what Jesus is doing as he's coming to heal, right? He's healing people. He is alleviating human suffering. Does Jesus have to heal people when he comes to the earth? Of course not. Of course he doesn't have to. He does because he loves us. Jesus could have come, preached the gospel, died on the cross, left the gospel for us to believe or not believe and still redeemed the earth. But he healed people because alleviating human suffering is not only innately within us. It's because it's in the very heart of God. Now, having said that, Jesus was also rooted in reality. He did things like people would come to him and say, hey, will you heal me? And he says, that's not what I've come to do. I have to move on. Jesus would do things like allow his own friend to die, and then Mary and Martha come up to him and say, why didn't you come sooner? Jesus was rooted in reality. He even tells his disciples, let me give you an unpopular verse that's probably not on a coffee mug at your house. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. That just seems un-Jesus-like. We agree? agree. Why would Jesus, Jesus who ministered to the poor more than you and I ever will, said we'll always have the poor with us. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus wants to tell us the truth. The truth is that which corresponds with reality. And when we actually hear the truth, we can be set free in life. Here's what I mean. Our innate problems that we face are not material, but spiritual. Jesus Jesus came to tell us this. The brokenness of our world and everything that we experience has more to do with what we've done than anything that is outside of us. Our desires to use our human wisdom, our human abilities to fix things has broken more than it's ever fixed. And the reason for this is because we have used our power completely untethered from and hostile to the good God who created the world. That's what Romans says, that we try to exert our own efforts untethered from God, unsubmitted to God on our own. And this is precisely the reason that human suffering and hardship will continue. And Jesus says right here in Revelation to the church of Philadelphia, hey, hard times are coming. Hard times are coming. Rather than dodging this, Jesus just tells them the truth. Now, I want to pause here. Why is that important? Each one of us, we we revolt away from that feeling of pain. That's innate within you. It's innate within me. It's like, that's why you put your hand on the stove, hot, pull away. Okay, so when you start hearing Jesus saying, hey, you're headed for hardship, you're like, let's read Ephesians. You know, (laughs) where can I get to a psalm? You know, what do you need to do, you know, in order to feel something a little more encouraging? That's completely innately within you, and I don't think you need to feel guilt about that. But here's what I'll say. We have to often get beyond our innate knee-jerk reactions in order to experience the life that's offered to us in the truth of the Bible. we got to go further. we got to go deeper. We have to be willing to sit in that discomfort. You ever got to a dis- like an uncomfortable scripture and just said, mm, maybe I believe that, maybe I don't. Let me get on Twitter. Why do you do that? It's because we don't want to sit in that discomfort in order to mind that truth to figure out what is Christ offering to us. And here's what I think he's offering to us. He wants us to see the world fully as it is, full of goodness, full of hardship, full of beauty, full of evil, full of suffering and full of joy, full of babies born, full of people dying, full of disease, full of birthdays and happy parties and anniversaries and dances and singing, full of beach trips and full of you realizing you don't look good on the beach. That's the world Jesus wants to depict for us because it's true. It's true, and here's the thing. If you don't see the world this way, there's only two other options. Either A, you expect too much from the world, and therefore you'll continue to try to get from the world and your experience in this life what was you were never meant to get from it, or you'll be so disappointed by that pursuit that you'll just expect nothing from this life, and you'll just be an Eeyore. You know, it's the hyper-Calvinist among us that looks at the kid, and your kid has its first steps, and you're like, yeah, but he's depraved. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, like you can't just celebrate. You're like, yeah, let's see him over there. Yeah, he's walking, walking straight to hell. That's where he's going. That's what we think. I'm serious. This is how we operate. So you're on that side, or you're on the other side. And here's the other side: suffering's not for me. God's for me. God's not against me. He's giving me a future and a hope. He's gonna complete what he started. I'm blessed, highly favored in the Lord, his son, his child, his daughter. I'm a daughter of the king. I'm an Esther. You only see that, and then here's the truth. That's a difficult difficult line to walk when you meet up with the reality of life. Because the reality of life includes mourn with those who will mourn, weep with those who will weep. The same Jesus that brought the woman who was caught in adultery and lifted her up and, gave, and wiped away her tears and sent her on her way, he wept over Jerusalem only a few chapters later as he looked at the city who would condemn him. You see, the world's full of both. Jesus offers us real depth here by saying, do you know that the Christian church is meant to be the place of parties and mourning parties, you know, morning and dancing, feasts and fasting, Because we're the ones who are most in touch with reality, not because we've done something special, but because Christ has revealed the truth about life to us. He gives us the gift of vision. One of the most common and deepest difficulties that I think we have as human beings is expecting too much from the world we live in. We either have a distorted or a perverted view of reality, and therefore it can be difficult to exist. But Jesus offers us an opportunity to celebrate the highs and to mourn the lows, to look forward to the future that God has promised in all of it. See, we can live in the tension of the already, not yet, and still always with hope. This is why Jesus says this one line, which I wish I had more time to talk about, but I am coming soon. Is there ever a more controversial line? Is that encouraging or discouraging for you? For many fronts, right? I'm not going to go hellfire and brim somewhere. You're like, if he's coming soon, where do you stand? It's like that's tough and that's real. But let me go a different tack with you. Have you ever read, "I am coming soon," and say, "Well, how soon? Soon doesn't seem soon. This was 2,000 years ago. Like soon for me is like as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to eat. <laughs> that soon." And when you're suffering, let me tell you something. Have you ever been like in, in a situation where you were in an accident or you, you, know, you were in real pain and you got to the doctor and they're like, hey, I'm going to give you some morphine soon? How soon? If you're in real pain, you know what I'm talking about. You're ready. Like, ladies, those of you who've had children, maybe natural births, or then you went to the epidural, you're like, how soon will we get to that? Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And listen to me, those, that line right there has kept more suffering Christians and helped them to hold fast to Christ in, in their hardship than maybe any other line in all of the Bible. Nevertheless, I come, I'm coming soon. Because when you don't see a way out of your suffering, the only way out is that Jesus might show up miraculously. I am coming soon is the only hope you have. C.H. Spurgeon said it like this, the Lord's quickly may not be my quickly, but even so, let him do what seems good to him. You see... This reminder that Jesus is coming soon really frames the entire encouragement itself because it shows us how we can live in the already and the not yet. I'll give you some examples. We can simultaneously cry out to the Lord because we long for him and we can celebrate the good in our lives because God has dealt bountifully with us. You can do both of those. Did you know that? You know, life is not nearly as bad as some of you think it is. And, and listen to me, and, and life is not nearly as good as some of you hope it will be. <laughs> At least not on this side. In Christ, I'll tell you, it's the best that it could ever be on this side. You see, the Christian should fast because the king has not yet returned and feast because the king has already come and he is reigning and ruling. You know, you know, God, the God of Israel in the middle of the desert set up a system where they would have like almost a party a month to feast In the middle of their wilderness, he's like, here's what I want you to do. Get together and I want you to feast. I want you to remember how good I am. I want you to party. These parties need to be, these were legit parties. You're not talking about, hey, you came over, we did a potluck. It was two hours and we went home and watched Netflix. These are day, day, two-day, seven-day parties. This is God's commands. We mourn that our enemies oppose us for all the wrong reasons, but we rejoice because our enemies don't have the power to define us. We do it at the same time. We lament because sometimes the Christian life feels like all closed doors. You ever been there? But you know what? We lift our eyes because we serve a king who has the key of David, and he opens doors that no man can shut. We do both of those things. And only the Christian can do both because only the Christian has at the center of their worldview the the God-man, Christ Jesus, who is simultaneously fully man and fully God, fully eternal, and still living in that flesh-wrapped body, the ability to die and the ability to rise again and live forever. that's, That's what we have at the center of our faith. And so we have that which is both temporal, we're tabernacling here, and we could celebrate and mourn because we know where we're headed. And where we're headed is the eternal city with Jesus forever and ever. Okay, what are the last things that Jesus says? And this is where we'll end. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's really two things, although there's a lot there. He'll make, us, he'll make them a pillar, and he'll give them new names. What do those mean? Well, simply put, in a church like Philadelphia known for earthquakes, or how about we take it into our day? In a time when it feels very unstable and the church can feel very insecure and you can feel like you're shaken at every level, God's promise to you is that he'll make you a pillar, a staple, a fortress in the very temple of his God forever and ever. If you have ever felt like an unstable Christian, you should hold on to this. Jesus' promise to you is that he'll make you the pillar in the temple. Meaning that God himself will make you a fixture in his very presence eternally. That's incredible, isn't it? The temple of God, it's where God's presence dwells. You're a pillar in there always with him. Isn't that what we all really want? Like you wake up in the morning and your communion time with God reading your Bible is like you're in the presence of God. That's the promise. You're a pillar, integral to the very structure itself, which provides an opportunity for everybody else to come in. That's incredible. Okay, but what about the names? There's three names he says he gives them. The name of God the Father, the name of God's city, the new Jerusalem, and the name of God's son, his new name. What do these speak to? Well, number one, it speaks to the fatherhood of God in our lives. No matter where we stand, no matter who you are, no matter what your experience has been, that you have a heavenly father who loves you. Could we not sit there for a long time and talk about that? First John chapter three says, that, oh, what kind of love the father has for us that we would be called the children of God. And so we are. This is a name that God will write upon you forever and ever. You are his Number two, the city of of God, the new Jerusalem. This means that there's a place that God's gonna write on your arm that's true for you. Jesus said it like this, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you it. There's a place for you. Not Not only are you a daughter or a son of God, but he's prepared a place for you to forever belong to him. Your home is a place of belonging. Your home is a place of safety. Your home is a place of protection. And he says, I'm gonna write upon you this name. And it's going to be of my city that you'll belong to forever and ever. You'll always have a home in the Father's house. You'll always have a home in the Father's city because he's written his name upon you. And then number three, the new name of God's son. I think that this speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus and his power and ability to redeem and forgive. That in this moment, when we all see Jesus face to face, we will see the consummation of what Christ sacrificed for on the cross. This is why there's the marriage supper of the lamb, this consummating moment. We have the the new name of of Jesus written upon us because he says it's finished, you're mine, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're cleansed. Everything that Jesus died for gets fulfilled right here in this moment. And this is what Jesus says, that he'll write that new name upon us, that we're, we're his. It's interesting because what father and mother doesn't want all the things I just mentioned for your kids, right? For them to know that they're loved, for them to know that they belong, they have a place forever, and to know that they're forgiven by Jesus, to know that they're redeemed. And this is the promise that that Jesus gives to Philadelphia. What an encouragement. And I think What it also does for us as the church, and I hope that it does, is it gives us some ingredients as to the kind of people we should be, the kind of place we should be. And I'll end with these questions. Can we provide a space where people are reminded by Jesus that they are God's children, that they are loved, and that they are loved perfectly by a heavenly father, even when their earthly fathers have failed them? That he uses his power and his authority for their good always. Can we provide a space where they're reminded that Jesus, reminded by Jesus, that they're bound for God's eternal city? They're bound for God's eternal nation. Even when the circumstances of our earthly city and our earthly nation are in turmoil, can we be a place as Providence that they can celebrate the good, mourn the bad, look forward for the future because we know our city is secure? That place of respite. Can we provide a space where people are reminded by Jesus that they are redeemed, they're forgiven by his blood, even when the guilt and the condemnation of their own sin weighs heavily on their mind and hearts? Anyone can come in and know that there is freedom in the blood of Jesus Christ, that sin does weigh you down, but Christ has died to absolve us, to cleanse us, to heal us to take wounded, broken people, that they don't have to leave the same kind of weighty that they walked in. They don't have to leave the same kind of dirty that they felt walking in. We don't have to leave the same kind of burdened that you walked in, but we can be that place that says, Jesus takes those burdens from us. That's my prayer for us. And I would love to pray with you that God, would you open the door for us to be this kind of people, to provide this kind of space that people would experience that kind of love from you. That's what my prayer is this morning, and I would ask you to join with me as you stand to your feet.